suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there, and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce Memento 21, Xerxes 18, uh-oh, Forbidden Fruit 12. To recap... Xerxes' brother, Mesistes, has said, no, Xerxes, I'm not divorcing my wife and marrying your daughter. So as, so as these things go, we continue on to the eve of destruction. Step number 11, on the Xerxes' 12-step path to perdition. Xerxes is now extremely frustrated with his brother, Mesistes. Who wouldn't be? Sometimes frustration can be the fuel that fires up new ideas in our imagination. And sometimes frustration develops out of the painful recognition one one has somehow imprisoned oneself and hasn't yet found a way to get free from enshacklement. But more important to this circumstance than Xerxes' frustration was his fear, born of long, lifelong cowardice. Like U.S. Speaker of the House John Boehner later mysteriously, inexplicably, he cried all the time. I mean, Xerxes was weak even as a child. I I imagine him with freakish, glassy, light blue, violet eyes and honey-colored skin and with, with a tongue that disconcertingly slips across his lips just before he speaks, you know, giving any audience the impression that whatever whatever he's about to say may or may not be true. And his weasel weak character is such that it makes one wonder. It really does. Why would his father, the, the you know, the great, the great Darius the Great, decide to violate the the laws of primogeniture and select Xerxes to be first in the line of succession over his older brothers, relying on a technicality or something to do so. Xerxes had proven himself to be as afraid to live as much as he was afraid to die. And that makes me think that Xerxes' brothers had been very, very lucky, very fortunate, you know, should have thanked their lucky stars that they'd been born in Persia, for they must really have demonstrated to their father, the great king, a complete lack of talent, a lack of intelligence, or a complete lack of character, or all of them, or or, or something else vital to running the empire was indeed lacking in these men. And because and birth in Persia proved lucky for Xerxes' elder brothers, for had they been born so lacking in the necessities, as the Las Vegas oddsmaker Jimmy the Greek had so insensitively but so memorably stated on one occasion in modern American history, had they been born, these brothers, had they been born to Xerxes' sworn enemy, the Spartans, 
his brothers likely would have been tossed off the cliffs to be killed at birth. The Spartans did those kind of things whenever a baby displayed early signs right out of the chute that they were deficient in the essentials, lacked what would be needed um, physical, emotional, or otherwise to someday promote and defend Spartan interests, the Spartiate cause, whenever called upon to do so. They didn't horse around with these sort of things. Now, Xerxes stood guilty of the atro of atrocities to come as a mistress would, for he had to know what his queen was capable of doing. And yet he stood back on the brink and did nothing to stop the madness he knew would be unleashed. And exactly, exactly what that might be, precisely what that might be, he could not know. But he possessed the power to imagine. We all have, we all have imaginations. He could imagine what she might do, and it would be frightful. Yet still, Xerxes stood back paralyzed. Again, proof that, uh, you know, uh, once again, that man fears the unknown more than he fears the known. And given his brother's fierce refusal to divorce his wife, O, and marry Xerxes' daughter, Xerxes adopted his apparently most comfortable position. That was, his tail was tucked firmly between his legs and he went to the queen's chambers to inform his queen. And again, this is not recorded in history as such, but, but this, is, this is how it had to go. This is what I think Xerxes said and the way he said it to his queen. Ah, uh, Queenie, remember he loves her. Queenie, do circumstances um, completely beyond my control. I might have to disappoint you, my queen, and, and, and break long-standing Persian tradition. I, I might be unable to live up to the long-standing Persian tradition and fulfill my obligation to you to make um, your, your, your queen's birthday wishes, official wishes, come true. Not these wishes, and not this year anyway. I mean, this is a travesty, I know, but, you know, the king, then he attempted, in my opinion, the pathetic. He suggested to Queen Amestris that he had, he tried the impossible, he really did, to blame outside forces, outside factors for his failure. You know, to, that, that's why he, he failed to be able to deliver her birthday wish. He then, like a weenie, he blamed his brother, Masistes. Used it as an excuse as to why things hadn't worked out and wouldn't, and why he couldn't fulfill her birthday wishes, which had in, been insane and sick from the get-go, and he knew them to be so. But but all the king's BSing hadn't changed anything. This this would have been um, it would have been a high wire act to pull this off. A, you know, a stunt only performed successfully. Um, had he been, you know, say, one of the flying Walenda brothers, and he wasn't. But still, the king attempted to blame Masistes. He won't give you your birthday present. Under no condition will he divorce his wife. Oh, he loves his wife. And as a result, he won't agree to marry our daughter anytime soon. Anytime, really. You know, if the truth be told. Sorry about that, my queen. I did my best, um, and, and 
By the way, you can see why this queen, this king would get trampled in war. And Queen Amestris responded to this weenie king in a most ominous form by telling the king, uh, no problem, Xerxes, I'll take it from here. Now, that's got to give you goosebumps. You know, when, when Xerxes heard those words from his queen, no problem, Xerxes, I'll take it from here. It, it, it had to send shivers up his spine. It just had to. <laughs> and I, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm reminded that Leo Tolstoy, that, you know, the great Russian writer, uh, a bit wordy, um, but he, and himself a very, very strange character, you know, even stranger than the characters whom um, appeared in his thousand page plus novels. He had a tortured relationship with a woman, his wife as well, whom, whom my, it well might be said, I mean, it might be very true that she would not have been such a dreary character if only she had not suffered the misfortune of having hooked up with the famous Leo, who was no lion, by the way. You know, ostensibly having, you know, agreed to live with him for the rest of her life in the rough environs of an extremely impoverished Russia, a Russia far worse off than Putin's piece of crap Russia today. You know, a third world country with nukes that those nukes may or may not blow up on the launch pad. I, I digress, but... Tolst- Tolstoy once had written a line that I think, I think really applies here. When, when I have one foot in the grave, I will tell the whole truth about women. I shall tell it, jump into my coffin, pull the lid over me, and say, do what you like now. Well, when I read these words, I don't think Leo was a big misogynist. I read these words written by another famous pussy of a man. He has to be in the grave before he speaks. I mean, what is with these guys? Terrified by their women, terrified by their wives. You know, Tolstoy was a pussy 2,500 years after the man uh, whom must have been his hero, another pussy, Xerxes. Thucydides was absolutely right when he wrote those words that human behavior never changes. When you, have a, when you have a king who beheads people on an arbitrary basis, on nothing more than a whim, but who's afraid to tell his wife, no, you just got to know the story of O has got to be a forerunner to the gothic horror novel where humanity and the unnatural but almighty forces of evil within an oppressive, inescapable, and bleak landscape will battle it out for you know, supremacy. And we know the barbarians are tough and evil will win. We know what force wins out in Gothic horror stories. Plato wrote that one should be kind. You know, I mean, Plato's telling us to be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Unfortunately, Plato would not offer such advice until like a century, about a century after Queen Amestris might have read those words and pondered the meaning of such a concept of being kind to everybody. No, Zoroastrianism was the religion of the queen, and it promoted the concept of Manichaeism. That is, in this world, there exists only two forces— good and evil. And there is a perpetual struggle between these two forces and only one force can possibly win out. 
And given Amestris is the force in this battle, we know which side will triumph. It's evil in a landslide. The good in military terminology, and not that Xerxes is on the side of good, but good is going to be defeated in detail, cease to exist, annihilated as it were, you know, as the Romans um, at the hands of the Carthaginians led by Hannibal at Cannae in 216 were completely wiped out. Or if you prefer, you know, sort of a modern, you know, way of approaching things, like, like the Rolling Stones once sang, it's all over now. You know, the queen proceeded as she had promised, I'll take it from here. Whoa, whoa. The, and the queen did. So the next thing she did was she assembled her royal bodyguards. They gathered round her and she issued her terrible orders. Thinking, you know, in thinking like the Roman emperor, the, you know, the adopted grandson of Tiberius, Nero would 450 years or so after her, Queen Amestris knew the absolutely best means by which to get decent people to do horrible things was to convince them that they were not responsible for their actions, to convince them they were just following orders. Does that sound familiar? Thus relieving them of responsibility and blame. And we know this works because so, so many Germans relied on this very argument as justification for the atrocities that they had committed during the course of the Second World War. Otherwise, normal, highly educated Germans committed ferocious, outrageous atrocities against fellow human beings that we would have thought had been unthinkable and after doing so, defended their atrocities by su suggesting that they had only been following orders. Adolf Eichmann. Thus absolving themselves from blame or responsibility. Well, the Queen's royal bodyguards were ordered to go round up O. They were issued then very specific orders by the Queen to mutilate O in a very specific very precise manner that the queen was, queen was now going to identify. And she forewarned them of the penalty associated with the failure to perform one's duties. The guardsmen were to cut off O's nose, ears, lips, tongue, and her breasts. Is that understood? Well, yes. The orders were understood, but no that did not mean those orders were understandable. Then the queen continued. When the mutilation order has been successfully carried out and accomplished, completed as I have directed, you, guardsmen, are instructed to immediately deliver O's severed body parts directly to me as queen. Don't pass go. Queen's ordered orders issued. No misunderstandings? Understood? We all good here? Okay. Well, now we approach the finale. Oh, my God. This woman is out of her mind. I am in a far-off place Half of a world away And there's so much to do And there's so much to see Mother Nature's had her way There are mountains and valleys and beautiful hills Each 
vista something new And though my imagination's been captured My thoughts, they return to you So can you help relieve me Of this burden on my back There's something wrong deep inside of Something I must lack For I've got this worry You'll be leaving me And I must admit it that I'm scared 